Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 1. The first talk in the series was presented by Jack Crabtree on June 28, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Technical difficulties resulted in poor sound quality for the first few minutes and then very briefly near the end of the recording. Well, I want to do something a little different so I, I can have more of a conversation, even typically you. So what I'm going to do is for a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, I'm not sure how long we'll be interested and want to continue, but I'm calling this Some Reflections on Life at the End of Time. my contention that we are at the end of time. I want to explain what I mean by that. I don't assume that you know what I mean by that, but I want to explain what I mean by that. But I'm more and more convinced that we are at the end of time. And therefore, we need to respond appropriately. And so I'm going to take some time talking about what that would mean and what that would look like to respond appropriately to the fact that we're at the end of time. Now, to say that we're at the end of time, that's good news and that's bad news. It's good news because we are going to see the end of time. It's bad news because we are going to see the end of time. And the end of time in the picture that seems to emerge for me from the prophets is that at the very end of the present time, and I'll define what I mean by that, but at the very end of the present time, it gets to the point where it looks like God and everyone connected with God is lost. It looks like we have been completely defeated and crushed before Jesus comes on the scene and sets everything right. So, what that means is you gulp a little bit if you're going to be somebody who sees the end of time, because if you're on God's side, things are not going to go swimmingly for you at the end of time. Now, it's difficult to know what that means for you and I personally. It may mean nothing. There's a passage in Revelation where he says, let me see if I can find it. I don't, I don't know if I have it right here. But there's a passage in Revelation where he says, to you who are going to die by the sword, you will die by the sword, and whatever the outcome is for you, that's what you have to do. But it, what, what's interesting about that is that it implies that that's not everybody. And we here in America, that may not be for us. That may not be our destiny. So for some believers, it's going to be very, very ugly at the end of time. For other believers across the world, it may be not all that significant different than what we're experiencing right now. But it's going to get up for some. So, and in any case, as we are observers of history at the end of time, it's not going to go well for the things of God, for the people of God. And we're going to see defeat after defeat as evil triumphs, or seemingly triumphs, right up until the end, when Jesus comes back and sets all things new and turns everything around. It's the stuff that David has been looking at in Isaiah, that ironic reversal where the people of God have been under the heel of godless Gentiles only to have everything reversed in the end. Okay, now let me back up. 
I want to do two things as a preliminary. I want to lay out the picture and locate us in history, as I understand it, so explain what I mean by the end of time. But before I do that, too, I want to talk a little bit about encouragement. The biblical concept of encouragement, it seems to me, is very different than what we hear when we hear the word encouragement. The word paraklesis, notice that the parakletos often gets translated as the comforter in those passages, those chapters in John, when the parakletos comes, or sometimes we say the paraklete, when the parakletos comes, and we translate that, the comforter, when the comforter comes. That's a very unfortunate translation, I think. Paraklesis is not comfort. Paraklesis is encouragement. And encouragement comes in a lot of different forms. What all encouragement has in common is that it motivates me and it empowers me and it gives me the strength to do the heroic act that every one of us has been called to, that act of heroism where we believe the truth against our culture, against our friends, against everything happening around us. We embrace and we believe the truth and place our hope in that against all the forces that are arrayed against us that would dissuade us from embracing the truth and defining our life by it. We need courage to do that. We need to be empowered to do that. We need to be fortified inside to do that. And paraklesis is that fortifying that comes about when someone persuades us, someone provokes us, someone moves us, motivates us to do the right thing, to do the good thing, to do the believing thing. So we believe rather than cave in. That's encouragement. Well, encouragement can come in a lot of different forms, and one of the ways in which encouragement comes is by scaring us into sobriety. We need to be warned We need to be warned about how high the stakes are and how vulnerable we are and how dangerous it is out there and how much, if we're not on our guard, can be swept away. And you find a number of passages in the New Testament that are not exactly comforting. (laughs) They're telling us, be warned, don't be this kind of person, be this other kind of person. Because if you're this kind of person, Judgment is going to come, and you're going to be swept away in judgment and not saved. Well, that's not comforting, but it is encouraging, if you understand what I'm saying, because if I take that warning seriously, I can be empowered, I can be fortified inside to make the right sorts of choices and not be a fool, not be a pawn of the cultural forces that are at play all around me. So I suspect that I'm going to do a lot more of that kind of encouraging as we talk here than I am the comforting kind of encouraging. Now, is there comfort? Absolutely. Of course there is. The wonderful, the most significant comfort that the New Testament gives us is that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you belong to him, you're going to make it. You just are. And nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hands, Jesus says. If you belong to God, you belong to God, and you can't get a better protector than God. 
So is there a place we can go for comfort? Yeah, knowing that God in his sovereignty, who controls all things, who writes the script, who's in control of every choice, every decision, every event, God who controls all, if he wants you, he's going to get you. And there's tremendous comfort that we can find in that. So I'm not going to emphasize that always because, as Peter puts it, well, he tells us to be sober. If these are the last days, then we need to be sober. So the exhortation that I would give you, given that we are at the point in history that I think we are, is it's all the more important that we not be trivial about our lives, that we recognize how high the stakes are, and that we make choices in the light of how significant and high the stakes are. It's that kind of soberness, that kind of sobriety that... I'm advocating. Okay, reaction, comments, questions, additions, corrections, amendments. Were you talking about 1310 where he says, if anyone to captivity goes, if anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed? Yeah, right. Now, what he's talking about there, he's talking about the Jews in the land, I think, at that point. But I'm extrapolating. I think if that's true of the Jews in the land, then that's certainly true of Gentiles across the world, that it really depends on what my particular story is, how it's going to go down. If I'm destined for captivity, then to captivity I must go. If I'm destined for the sword, then it's to the sword that I must succumb. So I'm probably jumping the gun here, but what's the difference between the end of times coming and being sober because of that and I could die at any moment? I should be sober about that. No, no difference. Oh, I was so excited. <laughs> but there's something about the end of time that faces us into that in a way that my own death, it's easy to forget my mortality. But that's true. We should have the same perspective no matter where we are in history. Absolutely. David, and I was going to ask a question and I got too late that day, but it was, I think, his summary on one of the weeks on Isaiah where he said that the Jews had kind of, it was like God was nowhere around. They couldn't reach out. They just couldn't see his works. They were generations past when he had done something spectacular. And when he said that, I'm thinking, that's the way that I feel now. It's like you look around at the world and you wonder, what in the world are you doing, God? What's going on? It just seems like we're headed down a, a dead-end street and just hard to get a handle on what's happening, I guess. It's nice to think, oh, I know God's in control, and he's going to, no matter what happens, and the end's going to make everything right, but still, we're living in today's reality, and it just seems like easy to ask, where in the world are you? What's going on? Right, absolutely. And I'm more and more convinced that that's the importance of having a fix on the prophetic picture. And maybe this is a partial answer to your question as well, Nick, is that by having some perspective that the prophets have given us about how this is all going to go down, imagine if I didn't have the prophetic picture that says, before the end comes, it looks like God's going to lose. Then what are we going to do with that feeling? God, where are you? (laughs) Who are you? What on earth are you doing? This is, you're not even powerful enough to take care of history. That's the conclusion we might come to. And then Baal, if we don't have the perspective that this is right on script, 
This is exactly how he said it's going to go down. This is exactly how he's purposed that it will go down. So I have a basis for hope and faith and trust if I understand the picture well enough to not be discombobulated by the craziness that's happening in the world today. But otherwise, it could be downright discombobulating. We say God exists, but look at history, man. (laughs) Or look at what's unfolding in history. doesn't look like God is in control of anything. It looks like God's losing. It looks like he's a loser. So it's only by knowing that he is completely in control and the script is exactly what he told us ahead of time it's going to look like that I can rest and recognize we're okay because I know what's beyond the craziness. I know where this, how this all ends, and it's good the way it all ends. Sometimes I wish I could have attended Gutenberg because one of the things you teach there is how to have a dialogue with people you don't agree with and the spirit behind that and the loving spirit behind that. After the Supreme Court gave their decision, I went and read their arguments, and it amazed me that they couldn't find the truth. And I would say that if we're in the final times, that I'm going to confront more and more people that have lost their minds, people who have lost the ability to reason. And hopefully you have some (laughs) wisdom for me and maybe hopefully others. How are we going to deal with the irrationality that's come over us like a wave? Well, I I don't have an answer for you. (laughs) A Gutenberg education would not have helped you in this current climate. It takes two to dialogue. And rationality and truth have nothing to do with anything any longer in our culture. Well, once you throw those out, once you throw truth and rationality out, what do we have to work with? Nothing. And so that sense of helplessness that you feel, that sense of helplessness that I feel, that's where that's coming from. You can't reason with people because it's not about reason and it's not about truth. I was struck by Daniel, the prophet Daniel. In one of those last chapters, he talks about God calling him the God of truth. Two or three times, he calls him the God of truth. And that the important thing is, he says, Daniel, you have been blessed. People with insight will shine like stars in the latter days. And it's all about their relationship with the God of truth. The thing that was most alarming about this week was not the decision on gay marriage, was not the decision on basically the throwing away the Constitution. The thing that was most alarming is we saw the codification of postmodernism this week. The postmodern rejection of truth as truth became part of judicial case law, constitutional argumentation. Well, where do you go from there? If truth is not truth, and if truth is not what we're seeking, and not what we're interested in and what we're all about, then there are no boundaries. There are absolutely no boundaries at all. What was most alarming about the decision about gay marriage was the dissent. The dissent was based on actually fairly technical aspects of Constitution and American government and so on. I I didn't read them, so maybe buried in there are some great insights that I am not aware of. But as it was reported, the dissent was based on states' rights and the nature of individual liberty and that kind of thing. It wasn't based on 
look, we have thousands of years of knowing what marriage is. We know what the truth is about this, so it's kind of out of our hands. That was not the argument of the dissenting decisions, mm-hmm. the minority decisions. That's kind of spooky scary. But yeah. that's our culture. That's where we're at. Truth doesn't matter, or more importantly, truth is whatever I prefer it to be at the moment that makes me feel comfortable. Whatever makes me feel comfortable is the truth. And if you make me feel uncomfortable, then you hate her. Don't bother me with the truth. Get out of my face. Get out of here. Be dead. Be damned. Whatever. But just get out of here. One thing that Kathy and I have been talking about lately, and it's becoming crystal clear now, is the verse in the Old Testament that says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Right, right. And she goes, when did this happen? (laughs) Right. Well, I said, the New York Times said God is dead. I don't know when it happened exactly, but someplace along the way, we decided that we didn't want to have God in our life. And that's the thing, that's the significance of what happened this week, is the hubris that decided God makes no difference. Can you imagine a Supreme Court justice saying, God defines what marriage is, and so we don't really have the authority to define what marriage? They'd be laughed out of the courtroom. They'd be excoriated in the press. Everybody would think they're a nut because God doesn't have anything to do with it. So that's where our culture is, that God is irrelevant to what we're all about here and what we're doing here and the way we're thinking about this. God is completely irrelevant, and yet God is the truth. God is exactly what's most relevant about this whole debate and this whole concern and this whole matter, and yet we've so closed the door to him that we've rendered him completely irrelevant. We are now God. We define. We decide. We choose. And it's just, it's that the Garden of Eden and the sinfulness of the human heart writ large right now in our culture, just expressing itself without fetter. There's no restraint on it at all. We are God, and we will decide what marriage is. We will decide what truth is. We'll decide what language is. Give me a statement. I'll decide whether it means what you wanted it to mean or not, whether it was what you intended or not, selectively, of course only when I want to. But now where do you, how do you argue with someone? How do you dialogue with someone? How do you have a conversation with someone if all of those things are stripped out of your hands? So we are so at the mercy of God right now in our culture. I'm going to talk about some things that I think, so where do we go from here and what do we do about that? That's what I want to talk about. Wouldn't you say it's not just our culture, though? Oh, it's the world. It's the whole world. The the reaction of the world was like, you, wahoo, yeah, it's for the, the United whole world. States. We just made great strides. We're, yeah. They were very happy for us. <laughs> yeah, the whole world. Where can you go where it's significantly different? Don't mind me kind of uh, commenting to a bit to what you and Roger were just saying. Is in a way kind of the seeds of postmodernism were laid with Darwin when basically he said that does it matter what the definition of a species is? I probably need to kind of go back to what Darwin said in Origin of a Species. Is a Gutenberg alumni was one of the books that we read in Charlie's class. That was basically where the seeds were laid for definitely a language relativism. Right, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, so what I'm just saying, it wasn't an overnight thing. Right. No, not at all. Now, I was thinking about this week is that what we've seen, postmodernism no longer safely confined to the university where you're paid to say crazy stuff. It's no longer confined to the university. It has now gone mainstream. It is absolutely in the mainstream of American culture. And with all the destructive implications of that, that's where we are at now. Yeah, and it just became yeah. clear, crystal clear this week. And if you'd uh, mind me making a second point, but this whole thing with gay marriage, it's not about equality or love or, or whatever the proponents want to call it. It's really about silencing uh, political dissent. Is There was this Philadelphia news, newspaper, I think its website is uh, Pin Live or a Patriot News Service. Mm-hmm that basically said that because of the Supreme Court's decision, we wouldn't be printing any guest op-eds or letters to the editor that oppose same-sex marriage for any longer until they heard from readers that said they were angry with that change of policy. And then suddenly the newspaper was offended by the fact that many readers didn't see their wisdom or the fact that the readers weren't enlightened by the editors, well, for lack of better words, but the wisdom. So editor kind of did a bit of a backtrack and tried to do a little reinterpreting of events and rewriting history. Right. Well, and that's the part that's alarming about where we're at today. It's not that there are sinners in the world. There have always been sinners in the world. It's not that there are unbelievers in the world. There have always been unbelievers in the world. There have been vast cultures that are godless. There has always been godlessness in the world. That's not the issue. And any biblical believer, anyone who has faith in the gospel, has always recognized that people have to come to the truth willingly, voluntarily, on their own. So we who really understand the biblical gospel have always let people live the way they are going to live. If they want to be godless, then they will be godless. That's not the issue. The issue is the kind of emerging fascism that is basically coming into our culture and saying to people like you and me, you cannot believe what you believe, you cannot speak about what you believe, you can't even think what you think, or we're going to punish you. Well, that, okay, now you're starting to step on my toes. (laughs) Now you're starting to interfere with my bubble and my space when you tell me I can't think what I think, and I can't say what I think, and I can't live consistently with what I believe. That's serious. That's a very, very serious matter. And I think worldwide, that's what we're up against. That's what Islam is finally showing its true face. That's what Islam is all about, is that kind of fascism. And that's what secular naturalism is becoming in the West as well. So we've got these two fascist forces with a common enemy, you and me. God, ultimately, is their common enemy and anyone who's associated with God. So that's the world that we're entering into. And we need to figure out what am I going to do about that and how am I going to live in that. But I'm a little bit ahead of myself. What do I mean by the end of the present time. From the biblical perspective, you need to divide 
created reality into basically three chunks. You could do more, but for our purposes, the first chunk is just the age in which we live. And I'm thinking of that as beginning at creation and extending all the way up until, as David pointed out in Isaiah, we come to a point where he talks about God creating a new heavens and a new earth, right? Now, I've always thought that the new heavens and the new earth was the end of this created reality and the beginning of a whole different created reality. But if we look at that chapter that David was showing us, I would argue that that's not what that's talking about. What that new heavens and the new earth that he's talking about is a complete transformation of this world that we live in right now and a complete transformation of history, the history that we're in. There's going to be a watershed event in history, the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. And this side of Jesus is the old heavens and the old earth. The other side of Jesus is the new heavens and the new earth. Everything is going to be made new and different after that. It's when Jesus comes, it's the beginning of what traditionally theologians and Bible teachers have called the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ after he comes to earth and he will reign. Then, at the end of that point, then you have another major transformation where you have us leaving this created reality altogether and God recreates creation and we have an eternal age after that where all things are made new all of creation is made new. Okay, so there's these three chunks. The chunk we're in, the millennial kingdom that will come about after Jesus comes back, and then at the end of that, we actually have a complete recreation of created reality itself, and that's the eternal age. So we can talk about the end of this present age, and we can talk about the end of the present heavens and earth. That's going to confuse you in light of what I just said, but the end of this present created reality, and we can talk about the end of the present age. So I'll try to be consistently using that language. Jesus comes and puts an end to this present age. He, we enter into a new age, the millennial age, which comes to an end, and then we reach the end of this present created reality and enter into a whole new created reality. So those are the three chunks that I'm talking about. Now, what's always been confusing to me is to read the prophets. You, like at the end of Isaiah, the last couple chapters that David took us through of Isaiah, you look at those, in a lot of ways, it sounds like what he's talking about is eternity, our eternal state, our eternal existence. But let's go back and visit that again. I want you to notice a few things here. If we look at... Okay, 66. Oops, 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 that wasn't it. I'm going to have to go by memory here, sorry. But remember the passage about a young man will live to be 100 years old, and he talks about their offspring? Well, what an odd way to talk about eternity, because we know how Jesus described eternity. In eternity, there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Yeah, 65. There we go. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now, David suggested maybe that's just sort of a metaphor for immortality. Could be, but notice he goes on. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear, and so on. He seems to be describing a quasi-normal kind of human existence. You marry, you have children, you work, you engage in agriculture, so on and so forth. It's not really all that different than our life now, except that it's a new heavens and a new earth. And there's going to be all kinds of reversals, all kinds of ironic transformation of things so that Israel is no longer under the thumb of the nations and so on and so forth. And everywhere we turn, Isaiah seems to be focused on that. Not on eternity, but on that, on what we call the millennium. So when I talk about the end of the present time, what I'm talking about is I think we're on the threshold of Jesus coming back, setting all things right, and instituting, inaugurating this millennial kingdom that's about to take place. That's what I mean by the end of time. So I don't mean the end of created reality. Now, I've been faked out a lot in my life as a Christian by all kinds of false images. Whenever I think of the end of time, I always flash on the movie, The Book of Eli, where the guy's walking across this completely deserted, chaotic mess where civilization has stopped. All you have are thugs who will kill you, eat you, or rob you. Then you have to look out for them. Otherwise, there's dust, nothing but dust everywhere that you look, and broken down cars and everything. I always think of the end of time as the end of everything, the end of civilization and so on. I don't think that's true. Because notice when you get the prophetic picture of what's it going to look like when Jesus is king, all the nations are going to pay tribute to him in Jerusalem. All the nations. There's only six people left, and they're in a hole in Nevada. I mean, what are you talking about? What, what, is, what is this all about? No, apparently you actually have nations that still exist. You have kingdoms that still exist. You have civilizations still out there, still engaged in economy, still have natural resources such that they can give their natural resources to the kingdom that Jesus is building in Jerusalem. Another misconception I've always had is, you know where this comes from, How hard is it for Jesus to build a kingdom? It just goes, right? And rays come out of his palms and out of his hands, and there's a temple there and a fortress there and a 
orchard there and a river there and so on. He's a superhero. He's an X-man, right? No, he's a human being. See, we forget that. We forget that Jesus is a human being. And miracles happened in connection with the life of Jesus, but only the miracles that his father wanted to happen. The rest of Jesus' life was accomplished the same way you and I accomplish things. Jesus didn't transport himself from Galilee to Jerusalem. He walked, just like you and I would walk. That same Jesus who walked here the first time is the one who's coming back to establish the kingdom. So most of what he accomplishes, he will accomplish as a human being. Will there be miracles? Yes, undoubtedly. But only the miracles that God wants to accomplish miraculously, supernaturally. The rest of it is going to get done by Jesus and people like you and me who are serving with him. We are his servants, and we are going to do things the way we do things. Now, if I'm right, at that point, you and I will be immortal. But although we will be immortal, notice that Jesus who came out of the grave and walked down the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and talked to them, he was immortal too, but he sure could have fooled the disciples. They thought they were just talking to a stranger walking down the road, apart from the fact that he appears to have just instantaneously disappeared <laughs> from the dinner they were having with him. But otherwise, he was interacting with them the same way he had interacted with them in his mortality before his resurrection. So presumably, something like that will be the way that we will interface with life on this planet after Jesus returns. So the millennial age appears to be as continuous with this age as Jesus' resurrected life was as continuous with his pre-resurrection, pre-crucifixion life. He recognized his disciples. He knew who they were. He probably knew who their parents were. You never have Jesus coming along and going, you know, I'm sorry, I just underwent a resurrection. What was your name? I don't remember who you were. He has all the knowledge and memory and consciousness that you would expect Jesus to have. He was Jesus. I think we are going to be the same way. So the end is not the end in one sense, but in another sense, everything is going to be made new. Everything is going to be made new. And Satan the choreographer of this current chaos that we are all confronting is going to be locked up and shut up for a thousand years. And it's going to make a huge difference. So that's the new age that we're looking forward to and that, that lies ahead of us after the end of time that I'm talking about. Okay, you must have a ton of questions. So what? Do you have any picture of what you mean that Satan's going to be locked up or not a factor anymore. People still, they'll still be sinners, I'm assuming. Yeah, they'll still and be. So anyway, how does that Yeah, because notice in out? Revelation, after this thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan is released to go out and deceive the nations. And what do they do? Let's go kill Jesus. So yeah, we're still, <laughs> the human beings left behind, the human beings who will populate the earth at that time, not us. We have gone on to immortality. We've taken on immortality. So we interface with that history, but we're not a part of that history. The mortal human beings who are still a part of that history are still sinners. They're still at heart in rebellion against God. 
and the end shows it, the end proves it. But what's significant about that is we studied Ephesians. Notice where Paul in Ephesians equates Satan with the power of the culture. That's what's going to be eliminated. That's what we're all confronting right now. The culture is so powerful, there are Bible-believing Christians out there this week celebrating the decision made at the Supreme Court this week, celebrating it out of a kind of naivete, out of a kind of, I don't know, a kind of a blindness that seems so right to them. Why does it seem so right to them? Because it seems so right to everybody else around us. That's the power that the culture has over us. John in 1 John describes our faith as a victory over the world. It's a victory over the world. We have to be victorious. We have to overcome the power of world culture in our lives. Otherwise, we won't believe. So imagine even a bunch of sinners, if they don't have a culture that's leading them astray, and the culture that is in place is a culture that honors honoring Jesus and honoring God, they'll go along until someone comes along and tells them a lie. They won't, it won't be cool and groovy and hip and enlightened to be anti-God in the millennium. So that'll change a lot because how much of our lives is defined by how enlightened and hip you are if you are secular and if you don't really take God all that seriously. We Christians are affected by that. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is his son? Yes. Do you think that that should make any difference in how you think socially about social ethical issues? Well, no, I don't take it that seriously. No one would say that in so many words, but that's an effect what happens. Is that, no, I don't, it'd be crazy to actually go that explicit and that public and that open with how seriously I take God. That would be crazy. And when there's that kind of pressure on you, notice what it does to the entire society, the entire civilization. Well, that'll be gone, I think, in the millennial kingdom, because there won't be that liar there feeding us the lies that take us in the other direction. So, Jack, I'm remembering back to when a number of years ago now, I don't even like to think how many years ago it was, when you and I were doing the radio show Mm -hmm. out of Albany. Mm -hmm. At that point, when discussions on this stuff came up, you and I were both amillennialists, right. which means basically interpreting the Revelation 20 passage as the millennium being a symbolic way of describing the age in which we are living. Right. So Satan is bound now because the gospel is making its way through the world, and his release is, that time we would have both viewed that as what is coming up when Jesus returns. That is that final thing, Jesus returns and the eternal new heavens and new earth is established immediately there. So we're not looking at a, some sort of a millennium period between when Jesus comes back and then when the final new heavens and new earth and recreation and all that happens. So, and I'm aware of the kinds of issues, probably not altogether, but having looked at those things for a number of years, I'm kind of aware of the sorts of things that would lead you in a millennium kind of a direction and the things that would lead you in a not millennium direction. There are these things that we're trying to balance as we look at the 
prophets and how they talk and so forth. My question is just for you is for those of us who may not yet be convinced of the millennial perspective, how should we view what you're, what should we expect from this series that you're asking and you're doing? And, and I, my specific question is, should I be thinking that I am going to hear a defense for that particular perspective, biblical defense, an exegetical defense for that? Or is that the picture that you have that you want to paint for us? This is your assumed, this is how you see how it's going to end. And then the stuff that you're talking about, about how to live and encouragement and all that stuff is just on the basis of that picture. My basic question is, for those of us who aren't yet convinced of the millennial perspective, how should we be thinking about, are we looking to be convinced by that perspective? Or can we get this encouragement and comfort that you're talking about, even if we don't share the details of that final thing? Well, everything that I'm going to propose is relevant no matter what. That was Nick's question. Because if I get hit by a camel or a flying carpet tomorrow and die, that's the end. That's the the end of time for me. And so taking seriously the fragility of life and how vulnerable I am should lead me to the same place. So everything I have to say is going to be relevant anyway, in any case. But yeah, but I would hope that you would entertain the possibility that maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm seeing things right, and investigate, and think about that. I used to be on millennial. Maybe not all of you are familiar with the terms. So what I am proposing is a picture that's usually called premillennial, premillennialism. And that's the view that when is Jesus going to come back? He's going to come back before this period of time that I've been describing, that I call the millennial age. Jesus will come back, literally come back, before the millennial age, and we'll live here among us, and we'll have some more history going. That's a traditional, classical, premillennial picture that emerges from the prophets. Amillennialism is the perspective that everything that I have been talking about, about the millennium, is not literally true and won't ever literally be true. It's all some kind of metaphor for the spiritual rule and reign enthronement of Jesus right now. So Jesus is on his throne in heaven, reigning over the earth as the rightful king over all of creation. These are the thousand years in which Jesus is reigning. That's the amillennial perspective. So what's next to come? When Jesus returns, he's returning at the end of created reality to gather us together before God recreates an entirely new reality. So that's an entirely different picture than the one that I have just painted for you. And Ron is right. I used to be attracted to that perspective. But why was I attracted to that perspective? Because I had never read the prophets. I was a New Testament guy. And I wasn't even a very good New Testament guy. (laughs) But I just didn't know enough. I wasn't that biblically literate. I wasn't that that familiar with all the passages that I have to put up with. And I think there's probably other ways you can, other explanations as well. Frankly, and this comes back to culture, I think I was kind of contemptuous toward premillennialism. For no really good reason, I had just sort of absorbed that contempt from the culture. Premillennialists were 
hayseed Bible teachers who didn't know hermeneutics from Herman Smith. They were these idiot Bible teachers who didn't know nothing. So to throw in my lot with them, I was too proud to do that, I think. Now, I I don't know to what extent that was the case, but I think there was some of that in me. There may be the additional thing, I know it affects me somewhat, is that in our church culture, premillennialism is largely advocated by the dispensationalists. If you're familiar with the books like Left Behind or all of those scenarios where Jesus returns secretly and gathers up all the Christians and the airplanes crash and the cars crash into each other because everybody's disappeared and then there's this seven-year period where the Antichrist comes and does things. That picture is what most people associate with premillennialism because those two often go together. Yeah, thank you. And that's not my picture. Right. Okay. So don't assume that I'm painting the same picture as dispensational premillennialism, the pre-tribulation rapture where Jesus comes, calls us up from somewhere in the skies, and then we all go off together again while the Antichrist does his thing on the earth for seven years, and then Jesus actually comes back after that. That's not my picture. I don't think that's true. I think there are two passages that get misinterpreted that lead them in that direction, and that's the only basis they have for that perspective even though that's the most common and the most popular perspective out there. I'm not advocating that. And until someone can persuade me otherwise, I don't think that does justice to the prophetic picture. Okay, so just coming back to my question then, I'm still asking, I'm just trying to get a feel for what's coming up. Is this going to be an exegetical discussion about that particular view? No. Okay. Now, I'll be glad to entertain any questions and all questions, but it's not my purpose to persuade you here exegetically of that. It's more exhortative than that. If this is the case, what do we do? But with respect to the change of perspective, part of it is I had bought into the perspective that God was basically done with the Jews and the people of God were followers of Jesus, were believers in Jesus, and that's the people of God. The sense in which the people of Israel were the people of God has now been set aside and is obsolete and is irrelevant because the people of God are we who are in the church and who are believers in Jesus. Well, notice it's hard. How do I believe that and believe this picture that I just presented to you? Because the picture I just presented to you assumes God still has promises to keep to Israel, his people, that his people are relevant, his people are important, his promises to his people are important. The picture I just painted to you presupposes that Israel is still a player. Well, if I've already decided ahead of time that Israel is not really a player, I'm not going to come to that conclusion. I'm going to have to paint a different picture from the prophets than the one I just painted. But... Through my New Testament study, I came to realize that Paul doesn't think God's done with the Jews. Paul has a very different perspective. And the more I studied and the more I read and the more I thought about what they mean, it's not just that he's going to make a bunch of Jews Christians at the end, which is where I started. Well, at the end, God is going to do an exceedingly unusual thing, and he's going to bring a lot of Jews into the church and make them Christians, basically. And that's how the sense in which God is not done with the Jews. 
But the more you look at it, it looks like what the apostles believe is God has made some promises to Israel that he's not going to fail to keep. And that's what he means. That's what they mean by God is not done with the Jews. That's the sense in which God is not done with the Jews. So that then put me in a position to go back and revisit what the prophets are saying with new eyes. Well, if Israel is a player, then let's go back and look at Isaiah and Daniel and a bunch of these other things now, imagining that Israel's actually a player. Well, all of a sudden, all these prophecies sound like they're talking about Israel and what God is going to do in and through Israel and for Israel and to keep his promises to Israel and so on and so forth. And lo and behold, I didn't have to shoehorn these passages into my theology any longer. They just sort of begin to naturally unfold. And that, more than anything else, that's what has persuaded me of premillennialism, is I don't have to work so hard to make something a metaphor that's obviously not metaphorical. I have to say, it did always bother me. Take something like Ezekiel going on for, what, six chapters describing the temple. All right already. It's a metaphor, right? All right already. Don't give me the details. The temple's a temple. If the temple is metaphorical of something, why are you telling me the dimensions and the meticulously laying out all the floor plan of this thing? If it's literal, that makes sense. And so all of a sudden, instead of having to go to the Old Testament and turn everything into a metaphor or a symbol or a figure or something, when I couldn't possibly imagine going into the kind of detail and the kind of lengths that they've gone to to spell out to describe this thing when it's only a symbol, it's only a metaphor. That's what you do when you're describing something that's a literal reality. And so the picture that the premillennialism paints is a much more natural picture. I don't mean the theologians. We still need to think for ourselves. I never from any theologian got my picture of the millennial kingdom that I just described to you. That's by putting different passages together and trying to make sense out of them. So that's probably as much as I'm going to volunteer, but we can look at particulars that anyone has. If these two chunks of time are contiguous with one another, could you spend just a little bit more time identifying your signs of the end of times that's happening now? And when you do that, incorporate, is that slowly happening or will that be black and white? And then lastly, a second question with your last reinterpretation of the, or last understanding of the Old Testament. What today is Israel? What is God coming back to show his attention to? Geography, a certain kind of people, Israel, or another area of land? Well, it is in a specific area of land. It is a specific culture. So a specific people group that's unified by a certain culture and language. It's you all, handled it's the second one first, but in Israel today, there's at least four or five different groups of people. Which one of those peoples are you incorporating into God's plan? Those who are... Well, they're all in God's plan, but it doesn't go so well for some of them. So that the picture you get in Malachi, in Revelation, in various places is that the great and terrible day of the Lord is the day when Jesus returns. And that's the great and terrible day of the Lord. On the one hand, it's a day of judgment. On the other hand, it's a day of redemption, simultaneously, like a coin with two sides to it. For some, 
It is destruction and condemnation. For others, it's liberation and freedom and that reversal that Isaiah is talking about, that grand reversal, right? So that many in Israel are going to die on that day. They're going to be destroyed because God is coming in judgment. He has finally had enough of their unbelief and their godlessness, and he's going to destroy them. But there are some who are going to experience that day as the day of their liberation because they've been on the losing side right up until the end, right? They've been oppressed. They've been persecuted. They've been killed. They've been imprisoned. They've been hounded. And when Jesus comes, all that's going to get turned on its head. They will now be the ones who are blessed. And I think that's what Revelation calls the 144,000, is that group of Jews for whom that day is a day of liberation. That's clarifying enough about the Israel then to come. And then back to the first question, in the contiguous nature of the first chunk and second chunk of time, is there a transition period and you're identifying that with the signs of end times? Are there more things to tell us about the signs of end times? Is it going to happen really quickly or is it going to be a, we're going through it now and there's still a period of more. Yeah, I probably don't have time to do that today. It's in my notes to talk about why have I come to the conclusion that we're at the end of the present time. I'll talk about that beginning of next week. But I will say this, I think everything is in place. Nothing is left undone that needs to be done before Jesus can come back. I shouldn't put it that way. Not before Jesus can come back, but before the wheels get set in motion that culminate in Jesus coming back. Any day now, the storyline of the last hour could begin. It could begin tomorrow. Frankly, it's possible that it's already begun. In addition to yours and Roger's concern about even the last week, Roger brought up the concern, uh, you would surely tell us, hey, maybe the justices have got it wrong, maybe society's got it wrong, maybe we're all going in a direction, but it's still the providence of God. It's going to happen. Yeah. And that's your confidence. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. You. That part should be, should be encouraging and encouraging is that this event is more important than the flood in the time of Noah. The world has not seen an event as important as watershed an event as what I think is coming. Well, that's as scary as it can be on the one hand. That's pretty interesting, pretty exciting that we could be witness to one of the, the most significant events in all of created reality, created history. I think that's what's coming. Now, before I let you go, I ain't a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm not telling you when it's going to happen. I may be utterly wrong. God could send his spirit, could pour out his spirit tomorrow, and everyone has eyes to see, and they all become believers, and we undergo a reformation that makes the reformation look like a, I don't know what, but pale in comparison, and we go on for another 5,000 years without any sniff of an Antichrist on the scene. I don't know. Yes, that could happen. That certainly could happen. But it's not a question of could it happen. It's a question of will it happen. It's not going to happen if God does not will it, if God has not purposed it, if God does not plan to have history go that way. So the question is, what is God doing? What is God purposing? Not what is he capable of doing. There's no question of what he's capable of doing. But what is he going to do? 
And I'm just trying to compare against the prophetic picture the world that we now see around us and live in, and it's my judgment. It's not my declaration as a prophet. I have not gotten any dreams or visions or words or burdens or nothing from God. It's just my judgment that as I look at the prophetic picture and I look at the world, I go, wow, this looks suspiciously like this would have to look in order for this to get played out. And it's up to you to decide, question me, ask me, come at me. And it's up to you to decide whether you agree or don't agree. But if that's the case, then these are really sobering times. And we need to be sobered. And we need to ask ourselves the hard question of, what is my existence all about? What, what am I doing here? And what am I going to do with my existence? That's the, the kind of sobriety that I would hope that it would lead to. Okay, let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God who scares us because you seem to take your will into account more than you take me into account. You seem to be doing this reality in order for your will to be done, not that my will would be done. And you don't seem to really be ultimately concerned with my comfort. What you want is my salvation and my glory, my entering into an inheritance with you forever. Lord, give us the perspective that allows that to be comforting, allows that to be encouraging, that we might be willing to gulp and go ahead with whatever you have in store for us. If it's captivity, it will be captivity. If it's death, it will be death. If it's suffering, it will be suffering. But Lord, give us the perspective that allows us to recognize that you will be there with us, that you are not forsaking us, you are not beaten, you are not defeated, the forces of evil are no match for you at all, and that we will experience nothing and undergo nothing except that which you have willed and that which you have purposed for us. And your intention is to take us through to the other side of whatever experiences are lie before us into our eternal glory. Lord, give us a vision for what a blessing that is, how valuable that is, how important that is, that we might place our hope in that and persevere in following you to the end of time. We ask this in Jesus' name.